even if you don't see the point of life mm -hmm. or want to be here, the most important thing to know is it's not your fault. There is something mm -hmm. happening in your brain. And it doesn't even matter if it's nature or nurture. It doesn't really matter. What matters is you can get treatment. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, most of us aren't very good at it. And that includes me. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations with attempt survivors and I hope better conversations. I'm certainly going to try. Now we are talking about suicide, so this may not be a good fit for everyone. Please take that into account before you listen. I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. We've been launched for almost two months and more people in more places are hearing these stories of survival. Places like Sweden and Paraguay and New Zealand and Japan. People in these places are hearing these stories because they need to hear these stories. So I'm glad about that. And I hope we can get more listeners because these stories matter. Now, if you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, I would love to talk. You can email us at hello at suicidenoted.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please keep doing what you're doing. Keep listening. Let folks know about it. If you're on a podcast platform that allows you to leave a rating or a review, that would help too. Today, I am talking with Dory. Dory lives in New York City, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much for doing this and being candid with your with your life sure i always say i had a i had my reasons for starting the podcast and i and i like that i have it and i'm learning i wish i didn't need to or there wasn't a need for this kind of podcast but yeah. there is one of the questions that i like to ask people who who join me here is that there are a lot of people that try to end their lives and that most of them, most of them are not comfortable talking about it. Certainly not publicly, you know, maybe with a friend or a therapist, understandable. But then I find people like you uh, who seem more comfortable and I'm wondering why, why that is, how you came to be comfortable sharing it with people. I wish that when I was a kid, I heard people talking about it because I mm. felt like a freak and you know, they, I used to make a joke that, um, you know, I, it, there must be a suicide gene in my family. Um, mm. But you know what? If one person in a family commits suicide, it is more likely that other people in the family will commit suicide. 
and mm. there were um, there were some you know self destruction, some drug addiction, and uh, and one uh, you know shot my uncle shot himself in the heart, um, and uh, you know we didn't talk about any of this, and someone very close to me. Um, cut her wrists very badly and uh, she still has very pronounced scars and even her children don't know. And it's, mm. I really understand why you wouldn't talk to people when depression and anxiety run in your family. I was, right. so, I felt so isolated, you know, feeling isolated. Um, I felt like when I told people that I wanted to die, um, I thought everybody wanted to die. And why would anybody want to be here? Like the world is so screwed up, even, you know, even years ago. I mean, my, well, uh, and I would tell people and they would like treat me as if I were a leper. They would like right. look, look panicked and get away from, you know. Yeah. And so I learned very quickly not to talk about it. And um, it made me yeah. feel like a freak because nobody else was talking about it either. And uh, I really would wish my family um, had been able to. Now, my parents loved me very much, but mm -hmm. I we were a great fit. You know, I, I think I was, I think I was intense, you know. Wouldn't have been the easiest to raise, you know, but that's what it was. How do you think that talking would have helped you? I felt so isolated. I really felt like a freak of nature, you know? I mean, my first suicide, like, I say attempt, but I was mm -hmm. five. And um, my mother had lost her temper with me, um, and I felt it was, you know, unfair. It was like suddenly. And I decided that's it. I'm going to kill myself. And I was five. And I went into the, and I remember it very vividly. Uh, I went into the dining room. We had these tall chairs that had uh, wicker seats and wood backs. The wood was painted black. I checked this with family members, and it's true. Yeah. And I yeah. pulled it over to the mantel. And I knew that my father's Nazi dagger was up there. My father was an army captain in World War II. We're Jewish. Um, Jewish atheists, three generations of Jewish atheists, and my grandfather was a Zionist, but anyway. So um, I knew that because I was an eavesdropper, and my father was a great storyteller, and they'd have company a lot. And they'd often think I, you know, wasn't around or whatever. I would sneak listening, because it was fascinating. And he would talk about war stories. And he talked about that dagger. I saw him take it out and show it. And um, so I knew it was there. Um, and then when I went to open it, my little hand, like I had to reach up and get it. And my, my little hands couldn't open the snap. You know, it was like there was a sheet with a snap mm. and I couldn't get it open. And I was so mad. And I tried and tried and then I stomped off to my bed and probably took a nap. When my father died in 2009, very suddenly, he was uh, two months shy of 89. Uh, we went through his things. And we found the Nazi dagger. And I mm. want, out of curiosity, as an adult, you know, this was 2009, I tried to open it, and I couldn't open it. It really you could worked. never get that thing open. 
No, it really was tough. Yeah. So it wasn't meant to be open, at least not by you. And it looks exactly like I remember. You don't hear, I think, very often children of that age no. trying. No. That is really interesting. Or I, That's the word. It is interesting. For some, they might not use that word, but it is to me. Like, wow, okay. I know. That's how I, you know, I know that there's something wrong with my brain chemistry. I'm also very, I'm an artistic type, overly sensitive, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, not overly. I mean, I was told I was too sensitive when I was annoying. Um, yeah. You stop it, you're too sensitive. Or people would joke in a mean way, not necessarily my family, mm-hmm. anyone would joke and hurt my feelings. And they say, I was just kidding. But you know when it's not kidding. Something you said that I wanted to ask about is that when you would tell people, I assume this was as you got older, however it came about in the conversation, the way they would respond to you typically in that you just, it was, it it sounded like to me a very clear message of let us not talk about this. It was like, well, I don't know if I was interpreting it wrong, but it always felt like I was a freak. Like they were really like, like as if I had just said I had leprosy and I'm highly contagious. People would just be like, what is wrong with you? What did you want for them to say? Me too. I think about it all the time. I had many years uh, drinking and drugging. I had story Mm -hmm. after story. I was really depraved. Um, And uh, at one point I got into AA and I found an AA sponsor and she never told me what to do uh, because I'm very rebellious. So luckily, but I think she was too. So she just said, this is my experience. This is what I think. Would you like to know my opinion? And it was easy not to rebel. And so Mm. I, I listened to her. And one day she said, look, you know, I've never told you to do anything you didn't want to do. And, uh, she said, but I, you have to play sober softball. The only friends you have are, are drug dealers and drinking partners. You know, your whole life has, has been, uh, getting high with people. So I want you to meet fun people. So I said, I don't don't know softball. I don't know sports. She said, I'll go with you. So we joined and the group would go out for breakfast after we'd go in the early morning to the East river, chip in five bucks for the whole season, play sober, you know, softball with sober people and then go out to eat and make friends. And, um, there was this big guy, big, muscular, tough-looking guy uh, who turned out to be a teddy bear, very sweet. But, you know, he was big, and uh, I'm 5'2". So uh, I, he said, how are you? And I said, how am I? How am I? I want to kill myself. How are you? He said, oh, yeah, me too. Could you pass the salt? And I was just like, ah, I found my people. <laughs> found your tribe. Yeah, I found my tribe. Yeah. He and wow. I became good friends. Yeah, he helped me a lot. Well, that's awesome. I play. I used to play some ball in uh, Central Parks softball, not sober softball, but um, but softball. You had shared with me about your five-year-old self and uh, trying to snag that dagger. So I'm curious, as like move through time, how many times have you tried? In one sense, I was doing like a leaving Las Vegas kind of thing, where I just yeah, wanted, you know, I just kept going, but there. Yeah. Were- distinct attempts. So I'd say about five. 
So, you know, including that little five-year-old uh, attempt, it's not, it's just odd. You know, I mean, I couldn't do it. I don't know if I had gotten the dagger free, would I have been able to? I doubt it. I was probably five. not. Yeah. But just that I had that determination, like, oh, I'm going to do this because I'm out of here. It's, it's not normal. Yeah. Like, here was my survival instinct that is, that you're born with. I didn't, I just wanted to die, you know? And is that, and then you felt similarly for the other ones or did they look and feel different? I think I had a hard time. I was a very cute kid. Everybody told me how adorable I was. And I was like a ham and I was the youngest. And I think as that changes, I've seen it, you know, with other people whose kids are adorable and then grow mm. into like eight years old, 10 years old, you don't get the fuss anymore. It's not as cute anymore. And you do right. that sort of like, uh, I don't know if you know it, there was uh, Betty Davis in um, whatever happened to baby Jane. She was yeah. a child star, but she's still wearing like the makeup and like, but I just didn't really, I, I was great at being teacher's pet. I was very smart. I skipped a grade. I don't think people should do that. And I think the older kids resented it. And then I was in with people who knew each other. And I think that set me off. But as I got to be a teen, I think I was maybe, I was 11 when I uh, smoked a joint with people like we, it was a bunch of kids in a circle. It's funny. It was my parents' friend's kid we were visiting. And then dabbling with cigarettes, you know, and um, and then becoming a smoke, like a steady smoker. Once I get mm -hmm. used to the coughing and the headaches, you know. I, I mean, I just wanted to be bad. I wanted, I saw these kids that we had three, uh, three elementary schools in Port Washington, and they all merged into one junior high. So I met right. kids I hadn't known, and they were tough kids. Like, they talked back, they smoked, they drank, and I was like, it was sparkly to me. I was like, ooh, cool. God, so you it, smoked and drank, and you got into a little trouble. Exactly. And one of the times I stepped on the third rail because I heard you would die instantly, and nothing happened. So I stepped on it again because I wanted to die instantly. The train worker said, hey, kid, what are you crazy? Get away from there. Get out of here, kid. And so I know, it, you know, he said, you could get yourself killed. And I'm thinking, well, why didn't I? There was almost jumping in front of a train. And mm. I wanted to do it. I was hesitating, wanting to do it. And kids were high. And somebody saw me. Did I, did I make sure he saw me? I don't know. Um, mm. But... He was one of the guys who had, um, I got gang raped at 13 from these tough kids that I thought were so cool. And one of them I thought was my friend. And uh, I wrote an essay about that for the New York Times. It got pu published. This is before me too. <laughs> 2012, January. So Cosby, Bill Cosby scandal was 2014, just to give you some, uh, you know, a time thing. Uh, so January 2012, it got published he was one of the guys so who knows may i don't really i can't say that particular time i can't say for sure that because i was hesitating i wanted to but i was scared and he saw me so i don't know i don't have any memory of trying to get his attention but um he's the one who who, who knocked me onto the ground like what are you nuts and that's what i was what are you nuts but the others were very intentional. Um, when I was 
17. I'd been in a terrible car accident. Three people died. I almost died. My boyfriend at the time lost his hearing in his one ear and his eye, his face was um, kind of paralyzed, but not permanently, but the ear hearing loss was permanent. Yeah. It was traumatic. I, I've been through a lot of traumas, uh, three big ones. I heard that if you mix alcohol and downs, you die. I wanted to go quickly. Um, and I knew my, un- when I, I was right around that age, I think, when my uncle died. So I collected downs, you know, what I thought were downs taken from medicine chests and stuff at parties. So I had eight, you know, and I thought that was plenty. And I drank a quart of vodka and I slept for two days and I didn't change positions. And I was subletting that summer from my sister, my older sister. I didn't think it through, like she's going to find my body. That didn't even occur to me. I just wanted out. Always wanted out. I just didn't, I felt like I didn't ask for all this. I Like, it's not worth it. How much work to get what you want and how much heartbreak and disappointment and tragedy all over the world. So she noticed that I hadn't moved. She'd go to work, come back, go to, you know, and it's like, so she called my parents and I went to the hospital. I think they pumped my stomach. And then it was like, you know, we never talked about it again. I was very serious that time for sure. Um, Let's see. I I did jump in front of a train. Uh, That's when I was 15. Again, you know, I, I didn't think about my sisters. I didn't think about how my suicide would affect anyone else. I was that like in pain, you know, suicide is, mm-hmm. I, is like, I wasn't a beacon of mental health, shall we say. I was also on a sure. lot of drugs and uh, I had to, you know, you, your, um, your frontal lobe, as soon as you have drugs in you, your frontal lobe, like your, your judgment that says, you should go home now, or this might hurt your mm-hmm. sister. That, that's like in a coma, yeah. you know? And it was me, me, me. And uh, just, you know, I just was unwell. And um, so I ran away when she was watching us. And it was the first time my parents went away and left her in charge, I think. And Mm -hmm. a friend had run away, a friend from camp. We both got kicked out for smoking cigarettes, even though we'd been doing drugs and sleeping with the counselors. And like, it was crazy summer. So she ran away. And I asked if I could come with her. You know, she just told me, she called me and said, hey, I ran away. And she was in um, Greenwich Village in what was then the Hotel Earl. Uh, now it's the Washington Square Hotel. And uh, I have fond memories of, uh, of that time, even though I OD'd in the park, people had to like wake me and I had depression and anxiety and no desire to live, I guess. I don't know. Did you ever in this time, and this is so we're still kind of in your teen years, it sounds like. Did you ever have any period of time where you wanted to be alive and you didn't have these strong ideations of death or suicide? It's a good question. Maybe now, because I feel like I'm a really good aunt. I have nieces that um, I'm really close to and they lean on me and they tell me the things that nobody told me. And, you know, they have questions about life and I'm very open. And I have been since they were fairly young because I didn't want them to go down that road. And they haven't. Wow. None of them are drug addicts. I'm so glad about that. 
They're not even heavy drinkers. It's great, you know? When did you get clean? I shouldn't assume you're clean, but maybe I should ask that question first. Okay. Okay, so it was March 22nd, March 21st, 1988. I had Mm -hmm. a terrible, terrible uh, blackout. I had had blackouts since I was about 13. Um, where, you know, you're walking, you're talking, people don't know you're not there and you get, you don't know how you got home. You, you know, it's like stuff is erased. I woke up out of this blackout after a three day cocaine and alcohol uh, binge, which was common and not eating, you know, smoking a lot of cigarettes. And, um, I woke up in my art portfolio. I had graduated with, uh, on Dean's list. I had, won competitions with my art. I'd had some of my writing published even before that. And um, I ripped apart my portfolio, my art portfolio that I put so, I was taking it around to get a job. I wanted to be like an illustrator for record albums. We're talking about the seventies. So that was just around the time when it all went to photos mostly. Um, But you know, in the sixties and maybe early so there were still a lot of cool illustrations and that's what I wanted to do and I would draw stars and uh yeah it was pretty good and um and I I woke up and it was like I ripped these expensive eight by ten photos apart I gouged like it I mean I probably held it like a pen but it looked like I had gouged these song lyrics into you know indented in the in like with rays or something and it was all led zeppelin and jimmy hendrix lyrics like i don't live today uh dazed and confused you know it, it was like really weird and um my cousin my first cousin she had always said you're lucky you know you can handle drugs and alcohol and but you know it gets progressive and if you ever need help i'm the one to call so i remembered that and i called her she lived in uh new jersey and uh, it would take her at least an hour to get there. So it must've been an hour, but it, it felt faster than that. And she said, well, you know, do you still have any uh, drugs and alcohol? I said, yeah. She said, well, why don't you do those and I'll be there soon. And nobody ever told me to do there. Everybody was like, stop, stop. So I was like, oh, okay. You know, so I finished what I had. I thought she used psychology, but she said later, she said, no, I just thought you should have your last hurrah, get it out of your system and I'd take you to rehab. So she took me to a rehab. She said I was like walking, talking, whatever. And I have no memory of leaving my street, McDougal Street between Bleecker and Third was where my apartment was. That's the last thing I remember is sitting in her car. Wake up in a rehab uh, in like the detox area. Uh, Door was locked, it was, you know, I woke up and I like wrapped on the, you know, the window plexiglass or whatever glass. I don't know. I knocked on it trying to get somebody, and uh, I didn't know where I was. So it's it's so corny. It's like an after school uh, special. Like where am I? You know, like what happened? But that's that's what it was. It's truth. Yeah. And that place that place worked for you. It helped for a long time. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was very miserable with my, I tried every which way to quit drinking and drugging. Yeah, sure. So you were, you were doing uh, drinking and, and doing drugs for, it sounds like for uh, many years. 15. But then that place, 15? By 13. Several, 
I was like a stone cold addict. I was very enamored with all the dead rock stars, you know, and uh, right. I, I had Jimi Hendrix was like an angel to me. And I really thought we had some kind of connection. And uh, 20 years into recovery, I said to my uh, sponsor, I said, you know, I just realized Jimi Hendrix never even knew I existed. There's no angel. And she said, it's called an imaginary friend. I said, right, like God. But she didn't like that. Anyway. (laughs) From a young age, it's kind of interesting for many years doing that, right? And, but then you got clean and that was effective for you for how long? Or is that until today? I wish, Uh, I had one slip. So now I have 16 years back and I've had 16 and a half years. That half matters. Nice. (laughs) Now now I know all this gets sort of like blurry or mucked up because you've got addiction stuff and then you have I don't know if this is the right word, but like the mental health stuff. And they're obviously all swirly together. Did you get, I assume, and you'll tell me if I'm off base here, if you are regularly um, ideating and you've had several attempts in your life, a few that when you were in your teens, does that mean, do you think that you have a mental illness? Did you try to get diagnosed or have you been diagnosed? Well, yeah, and all I I have, I've been to a ton of therapists. Um, Well, first of all, I spoke to a, a doctor yesterday and uh, we were talking and I was asking, it, it was like an interview type situation where I was asking him questions. And, um, oh, cool. you know, he said that he had had, uh, you know, uh, drug addiction and depression and anxiety. He was very shy. Uh, and so the anxiety, you know, made it hard for him to relate to others and he was troubled. And I said something about, well, you know, we both had mental illness. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute, what do you mean? I said, well, depression, anxiety, you know, anxiety that severe, and drug addiction. It's, it's, you're, you've got mental illness. That's, that's mm. why insurance cover, uh, coverage. So what was your diagnosis? Or did you get, ever get formally diagnosed? I did. I did get diagnosed. But it wasn't anything like I was. I thought maybe manic depression because I really just knew two moods: <laughs> euphoria yeah. and I want to die. Like if that I makes sense, yeah, yeah. And but I'm not. You know, I there. I learned about uh, how the cycles work with bipolar, and you know, you where you can't sleep. I've never had mm-hmm. any sleeping, and so it's not that. Um, the only diagnosis I ever got was a mood disorder. That's mm-hmm. it. A general mood disorder. Right. You sort of fall between the cracks in some ways. You've got some of this, but not that. Some of that, but not this. So you're not quite this, but maybe this or... Right. So we get that. And I've gotten that too, right? They, they can't place me. So I get, maybe it's a mood disorder. Maybe it's a maybe personality disorder. We're not some anxiety. I'm like, what the fuck do I have? And yeah. how do you treat me? Give me some help. I have not ever tried to attempt my life. I've ideated... And I don't mean to compare, but it doesn't seem like the sort of depth or breadth of your ideation. It seems like it's been a massive part of your life. It still happens. When Trump was elected, I I just thought, oh, my God, I have a dog and and I had a dog before him and I have nieces and I, I my mother's still alive. And my, you know, I have to I have enough adulthood i guess that uh i know what it does to people because i've seen people 
you know, family. I've been to funeral services. You see what it does to the kids in the family yeah. and the, um, the siblings, the parents. It, it's just awful. And, and in my family, there was a lot. Um, I had one uncle who was a really talented painter. He was a, he supported his family by being a portrait artist in a hotel. They lived in Florence, but he um, smoked a lot of cigarettes. He smoked four packs a day. Now that's a little nuts, right? And and he had a heart attack and a doc and the doctor said, if you don't stop right now, you're going to die. And he loved his wife. He loved his kids. He had three kids. His son and then the youngest daughter, Angela, they both, uh, son Brad, they, they helped me get clean. So yeah. he uh, smoked four packs of cigarettes a day. And then he had a second heart attack because he never even tried to quit. Not, uh-huh. not even cut down. He just kept smoking. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to me, that's suicidal behavior. That's like not healthy, not good. But uh, people are like, oh, well, it's an addiction. So why do people have such a feeling about like lung cancer and cigarette smoking, but opioid addiction. Oh, you know, I mean, I don't really get the difference. It's semantical in part, but I think there, for me, there does feel like a little bit of a difference of somebody jumped off a bridge. Mm. I'm going to call that suicide as opposed to somebody's drinking and drugging. Yeah, sure. You're going to die, but it, because it feels, they might not, it's hard to know that you're really going to die. Even when a doctor tells you, so I, I, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just, just we're limited by words sometimes. I mean, the Surgeon General, probably by then, he was 46, so I should look it up. I'm not really sure yet if they had the warnings on the cigarette labels, but I think most people would know four packs, four packs. That's a lot. You're, you're definitely, yeah, and he got the warning, but anyway. Yeah, and it was his brother who shot himself, but the family mm-hmm. looked at it like, well, he'd had a stroke and he right. was... You know, he had problems, but he also had two sons. Like, you leave a lot of wreckage. And I'm, you know, that's the only reason I guess I'm glad it never worked. Sometimes I, I wish it had just worked because it'd be easier. My mind would be quiet. Like, that's, I think, what appealed to me about drugs and alcohol is all that noise in my head would shut up. Same. You know? Yeah. It sounds like from what you shared, your reason to live or stay alive is a little bit less of I want to be alive, I want to do this, achieve that, and whatever, and more, I don't want to cause pain on these people I care about. Yeah, that's right. Um, if you have lemons, you make lemonade. It's kind of like that. Like, I'm here for the duration. I'm not going to kill myself anymore. I can't. I, I really know that. People love me a lot. I feel very loved and needed and wanted. And I know from seeing other people's families go through it, I don't mm-hmm. I, I, w- I wouldn't do it, you know, and um, but that doesn't mean I sometimes don't feel trapped here. You had said that people in your life, when you were younger, but maybe throughout, they just responded in ways that weren't helpful. They weren't useful. They weren't whatever you may be needed. So I want you to imagine you're talking to those people who are going to engage with someone in pain, that kind of pain. Yeah. Could you say anything where they might be like, okay, that makes sense. I'll try that. Well, now there's like the internet and there's, you know, uh, live through this, which is great site. Yeah. Uh, Glenn close, uh, her, she co-founded, um, bring change to mind. Mm -hmm. And that is because her sister, uh, is bipolar and her sister's 
son, Glenn Close's uh, nephew, is uh, schizophrenic, and the stigma makes people not come out of the you know closet of like to say you know I, I'm sick and. Um, so she's trying to do away with the stigma by having people talk about it. And right. when you go on these websites, you find all these people who are talking about it. And it's so different than when I was young. I mean, even addiction, even rape, people, like there was no Olivia Benson, you know, from SV, Law and Order SVU. So nobody talks about rape and the victim's rights and the survivor. Don't think of yourself as a victim. And like there's... There's so much in the world now that is like literally at your fingertips. Right. But I would say is like the most important thing to know is it's not your fault. There's something mm -hmm. happening in your brain and it doesn't even matter if it's nature or nurture. It doesn't really matter. What matters is you can get treatment. Even if you don't see the point of life mm -hmm. or want to be here, I do encourage people to try to find enough in life to like be okay, maybe. You're, you know, I tried for years to be the one person, I, I'm smart, right? So, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's people smarter, you know, uh, but I got through school easily. I've been told I'm smart my whole life. It's just, uh, you know, a thing. And um, so I figured I was going to be the one person who figured out how to be euphoric all the time. Mm -hmm. But even in sobriety, but there's no, it just doesn't happen. It's not possible. So it's like when you bounce a ball, what goes up comes down. And, and the harder you bounce it, the higher you go, the harder you fall. And it's, there's no way around that. Right, and right. when I was a kid, I thought I, you know, I had a lot of an internal life where I felt smarter than everybody, kind of because I was skipped and that, you know, and people would call me right, smarty right. pants and stuff. And I got easy A's. So it, it made me, it gave me delusions of grandeur and, and alcohol and drugs can do that to people anyway. Uh, so that didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> but I really thought I was going to figure out how to be euphoric all the time. And I thought that I was smarter than adults. So I didn't take advice. Um, they didn't understand. Nobody understood me. I was like special. And so the, the best thing that's happened to me is, is letting people in talking, talking like I'm doing now, tell people what goes on. And, and, and even if your head's like nutty, like mine, you can still have tons of friends, a lot of love, repair your family relationships. You know, there's a lot and uh, you can actually have some fun. Um, I still, when things don't go well, when things don't go my way, like, you know, heartbreak, um, when my dog died, my previous dog, you know, I, I, that's the first place I go. It's like, I'm out of here. And mm -hmm. I start thinking like, okay, what's, you know, I start thinking of all the methods. It's an, you know, ideology. I mean, is that how it, what you mean when you say suicidal? Yeah, when I say ideation, right, it's, I don't know if I have the exact definition correct. Thinking about it a lot, maybe planning, it's there. And like you said, sometimes it is that way for me sometimes, like I've always got that as an option. Yeah. I'm out. Now, I've never followed through with it, but it, there must be some little mechanism in my brain like, hey, you know, I'm over here. You don't have to be in pain. So. Yeah. 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 It's 
escape. And, you know, that's why I think a lot of people with depression, they medicate themselves, anxiety and depression. Because when you drink and drug, you know, it's like a light, you, you just flip the switch, change the channel, and yeah. your mind becomes some, you know, you, more fun. <laughs> Yeah, I say that to people all the time. I, I still, to this day, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. I drink. I don't drink a lot, but I some I think I'm like borderline. So I was out last night with a couple of friends, and I have a, it's a dance class I go to, which is great. And I'm friends with a few people there. We go out. I don't want to drink. I want to have a very productive day the next day, right? And I just don't want to drink. I don't want to spend money on it. I don't want to drink. I don't want to have to drink. But I'm sitting there, and I know if I have... I'd probably get like a double vodka and soda with a little lime. I just know I'd feel better in that moment, right? It just chemically, and I end up doing it, whatever. It's not the end of the world. But I remember talking to the guy across from me who's at my teacher, and I said, man, I don't know how to explain this, but I just feel so much better when I have a drink. I just do. And I'm like, so I don't beat myself up for it, and I didn't, ha- I didn't chase it. It's okay. I feel fine today. You know, I spent eight bucks, whatever it is, fine. But it makes me think, yeah, and this is my long answer. Um, like just it's a lot of this is chemical. Yeah. A lot of this is just chemical combos and you just try to get it right most of the time. I mean, my sisters, they, you know, they can have a glass of wine and like, you know, what happens with me is if I'm out with people and I see my sister's wine glass and it's half full, and we're right. like leaving. I'm like, what the, right? Because uh, that makes no what? sense. Yeah. Because yeah. I finish it like more, more, more. More, and, more, more. Or you go to an event and it's free booze. Isn't that a tough one too? Yeah. Yeah. Well, not now because I haven't, you know, had yeah. so long. But um, oh, yeah. So with the slip at 16 years, it was, I was prescribed uh, a month of Vicodin for um, gum surgery. And that's oh, and it was before this opioid crisis. And so that's way too much. They should have given me like two for the pain, you know, yeah. but it became like, and I don't even like downs. It's funny. I never took downs like for fun. I took them to sleep if I had been on a cocaine, yeah. but the idea of a painkiller, there's a saying like a man takes. well, I'll say a woman, a woman takes a drink. Okay. And then the drink takes a drink. And then the drink takes the woman because it's like a chemistry thing where your frontal lobe is not, you're not in charge anymore. It's, it's right. a chemical reaction that some people have to alcohol and drugs and others don't. So some people, you know, most people who have a drink at the end of the day, you know, it's to relax. It's to feel mellow, to have, you know, drinks with friends at dinner, or, you know, a couple of drinks. But I don't think they're obsessed with alcohol and when are they, when can they have the next one? And I don't think their life becomes spiraling out of control where they can't hold down jobs. Their relationships blow up. They, they alienate friends. Like my, I had friends that didn't believe I was in a blackout and I would change personalities and they'd be really angry and they wouldn't believe me that I didn't remember. And I would beg them to tell me what I'd done so I could apologize. And, you know, so you lose friends when you're a, a drunk, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That was a really helpful answer, what you said. So there's opportunities for people now than, more than they used to be to sort of seek resources, seek people who are going through the same thing. 
I'm always also curious. So there's people out there who like parents or spouses or friends or maybe a coworker, whoever. And they, in these conversations we have with people, like the one that you had mentioned when you were younger, but presumably for most of your life of you're sharing with someone your pain, maybe the word suicide comes up, maybe it doesn't. And a lot of people just say stupid shit or, the, or just not helpful. And I'm wondering in your experience, what do you want people to say if they're in a position to be helpful or be supportive? Like what's the things that people say that maybe they don't realize it are, are making things worse? People say, oh, come on, you're being dramatic or you're just bored. Go do something fun, you know, or get over it. Relax. I hate when people tell me relax. If I could relax, I would relax. You know, saying relax, it's like, just say no to drugs. It doesn't work. If it worked, that'd be great, but it doesn't work. And so the best thing is like what they uh, call mirroring. It's when the child you know, says something and then the parent and now, you know, therapist will mirror it back. They'll say, I hear you're having a hard time. Mm-hmm. I hear you're thinking about um, death or you, you are considering suicide. Um, do you know that you can walk into any hospital uh, anytime and tell them and, and, you know, you will be attended to, uh, they're trained and you can um, reach out to therapists. There's a right now with COVID. There's a lot of uh, alcoholic, uh, I mean, relapses in the alcohol and drug community, yeah. and people with any kind of addiction. There, you know, and there's a lot of like um, spousal abuse because people are, you know, they're just holed up in these small apartments, and you know, and they're driving each other crazy, and uh, so. Yep. The, that and just things are escalating so much because we've been in this basically our country is at war with each other uh you know with hate 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 and it's it's really stressful and uh yeah so when you have thoughts like i think i might be an alcoholic that's okay just the idea is to talk to people and reach out and if you want to do it anonymously you know all over the web you have the web and you can also tell people what you need like i have one friend who i i kind of trained her to tell me if my feedback is not helpful and she'll say yeah because it's only making me feel more different that's great i've said what you know how can I help? I learned that. Uh, how can I help? Is there anything I can do? I love you and I want to help. You know, and, and that way you're, you're saying, I hear you. I understand this is serious. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know what to do, but I want to do whatever you would like a, a, a friend to help you with. And, you know, and, and I think that's the best way is to take the person seriously, to look them in their eyes, and to repeat back what they said. Like you could say, am I understanding that you're sad because of a breakup or you're depressed where you can't get out of bed? Hmm. Or are you thinking about suicide? Like for me, I would be, uh, especially after breakups, that was always the worst uh, trigger. Um, I would be in like my old dentist's office that was in the Chrysler building and it was very high up and I would look out the window and I would want to jump. 
and with subways. I want, you know, and I did once, but that's a, another long story. It'll be my memoir one day, you know, and I didn't tell people because it was like embarrassing, you know, and uh, yeah. And I was so used to that look from other people. And people would actually say, what is wrong with you? Life is a gift, especially religious people. Life is a gift. You know, that's going against God. And I'm an atheist, so that was no help. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there there are very few things that, there's a few, but suicide is right up there with the stuff that people really push. They're just, no. There are very few things, if any, where people just say, that's not okay. You are whatever. How could you even think that? And it's like, I don't know. I've always thought it. I don't know. And, and that didn't help me because sure. it was there. Well, like, and I was trying to connect. But so- well, I'm sure some of those people weren't actually trying to be helpful. Um, I'm always more interested in helping people better understand how to be helpful if you are wanting to help. A lot of people aren't. They're just going to say a nasty comment. Those, those, I'm not the person to ever engage with them because I don't know how to get it. But I, I think it's interesting or kind of sad when people who really do care about people in their life and they, they're trying, but it's not helping. And again, I think we can all agree. We're not necessarily asking for the fix or anything. Just what are the things that you can do that might be helpful or useful with the understanding that you might not be the person that helps them find the perfect doctor? or find the miracle drug, or have this epiphany, just listening, or the things that you just said. There are people in my family who have said like, why do you tell everybody everything? Like, God, you know? And I I didn't really know, but I, I just didn't see why, like, my feeling was like, why are you so secretive? How mm-hmm. does that help anybody? And, uh, and how do you get intimate with anybody if you're not telling them everything, you know? Like, how do you really have a friend you could trust if you're not telling them what you think about? There's that. And then I heard many, you know, as an adult, many, many years later, after people would say that to me when I was younger, I heard uh, a pain shared is halved and a joy shared is doubled. Mm. So I really believe that. I think that my natural instinct to tell people things, I think it's because it's like, an interaction, somebody, you know, it's a connection. It's a way to connect. Like, this is what I'm thinking. And then you find friends that go, oh, I think that way too. Like, like, like Scott at my, uh, at, at those sober softball breakfasts where he goes, oh yeah, me too. Pass me the too. You know, like no reaction to my suicidal tendencies. It was great. It was amazing. What is a myth that you would like to dispel around suicide or anything related to suicide? That you're bad. You're not a bad person. You're not a bad person if you're self-destructive. You're, you're, you have a mental illness. You have mental challenges. If you don't want to say mental illness, then don't. Just say you're mentally a little unhealthy, maybe. You know? You're hurting yourself. Um, that you could find a more fulfilling life, but you're not bad. It's not on purpose. You know, People don't understand that they, they watch from the outside as an alcoholic or drug addict destroys themselves and destroys everyone around them. And suicides too, like you see what happens to their kids. But when somebody is in it, when they're in that kind of state, they're not 
they think that everybody will be better off without them. They feel mm-hmm. like a drain. They feel like they don't belong. They feel like they're different. And it's not, you're bad. It's not a moral issue. And I wish everybody would take that away. You know, addiction is not a moral issue. Suicide, you know, suicide is not a moral issue. So I would love to get the shame out of it. You know, yeah. like parents feeling like it's not the parents' fault, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. because everyone you know they they have their free will they're also most of us are born with our personality so we're born a lot of it is our brain chemistry yeah it's not our fault we don't like to talk about that in this culture because we have this competitive winning you can control everything in your destiny culture and if your natural genetics aren't working for you well you can't no 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 you can do anything you want and i think it's bullshit i think it's very harmful like there's no you should try and but i don't know i just think it's kind of funny some people are just better at art some people can jump higher some people are good musicians it doesn't mean you can't learn a music but i just think it's a little weird i this whole like you can do anything you want is such bullshit but i know a lot of people don't like when i say that but i don't care i chose the the art artist life you know i could have made more money if i became a, a lawyer or something you know but yeah. i'm happier this way because i i yeah. don't i wouldn't fit in that world and i you know i get my bills paid and i worked really hard for a boss that i didn't like for eight years and you know, I, I learned a lot. I got I got a lot of dental bills paid for. We had a great dental plan and um, and I got training and, and I was prepared when I, in 1994, when I went into business for myself and it's worked, you know? Was there anybody in your life outside of the sort of extended families you found, for example, with, uh, what was it called? Sober softball. Oh, yeah. But let's say family, close friends, whomever else that responded to you, your suicide attempts in particular, but maybe the other stuff that was all sort of swirling around. Did anybody respond to you in a way where you're like, that's what I needed. Thank you for responding to me in a way that was okay. Anyone? Yeah, I have long-term friends. I have, I would say a handful of uh, people I've known for 40 and 35, 40 years. And uh, they know me really well. I'm quirky. I'm not crazy, but I'm definitely eccentric and quirky. Very New York. And I know I'm intense, but you know I like to think I'm fun too. And that's uh, they will they tell me you know like I'm a riot and like I say things that nobody would say because most people are like they just wouldn't come out with it. And for me, it's like I'd rather they know me because I don't want to feel like. Oh, they wouldn't like me if they really knew me. They like me because they know me. So, yeah, yeah. You know, like, like I said, it's more of an intimate friendship that way. Yeah. So they know you. They know your, you know, your flaws and your and yeah. like, uh, good qualities. How has the lockdown been in New York City? I know you guys had the epicenter for a little while. So how's that? And how was it for you? And, and even like your mental health or your spirits? Well, challenging. Mm. Uh, I think I'm probably doing better than some and worse than others. You know, it. Uh, you know, my friends and I will hug. So you know, say hey, how you doing? And you get a big hug. So you know, we can't hug. So I've started a 
couple of friends and I have started to stay six feet apart with the masks on and meet outside and take a walk. And it's hard to hear, you know, when you're six feet apart and it's not, it's weird, you know, but it's better than not seeing them. And, you know, we go like hug, you know, cause normally you would hug and that, right. you know, I, I think if I didn't have, well, I know if I didn't have a dog, I, I would be suicidal. But I don't know how people without a pet can manage this stay-at-home business. No, I'm one of them. I don't know how I do it, but this stuff helps. You're, you live alone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I tell people that, you know, talking to people and then being so open and sharing their stuff, you know, it's, in some ways it helps me. There's some common ground yeah. and you know that you're not alone in dealing with stuff. And, you know, you can hear. So if someone were to say to me, well, you know, you're not the only person. I'm like, I know. But when someone actually, whether it's Zoom or in real physical life, shares stuff, mm. it feels different. You're like, okay, that's a little bit more. And okay. Yeah. So. Well, it's helpful to meet with my friends on uh, Zoom too. Yeah. You know, yeah, I have like writer friends and we get together and read each other what we're writing. And, and it's just so great to have that routine uh, so that we don't have to stop seeing each other because we're really close. So yeah. yeah. Anything else? This has been a lot and it's great. And I'm sure people that hear it will, will learn or I don't know, hopefully just. I, I always can- try to be helpful. I talk to classes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, going to colleges and uh, I'd like to find some junior high schools and maybe even elementary yeah. schools, you know, to speak to like sixth graders, maybe. Yeah. Um, certain, super young might be hard. I don't know how it works. Maybe they're doing that. Middle school, I would imagine, is a really, is probably a great age for that to really get in for some a little before it really gets out of hand. It's all good. We're all doing it for the right reasons, I hope. It was great talk. All right, Dory, have a great day and stay safe. As always, thanks so much for listening. Special thanks to Dory up in New York City. Again, if you like this podcast, let folks know about it, rate it, review it. And if you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com. We drop new episodes every Monday and Thursday morning, so stay tuned for those. Until we connect again, stay strong, do the very best you can. I'll talk to you soon.